Section 51 of Tom Jones. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Charlene V. Smith. Tom Jones by Henry Fielding. Book 14. Chapter 7. The Interview Between Mr. Jones and Mr. Nightingale The good or evil we confer on others very often, I believe, recoils on ourselves. For as men of a benign disposition enjoy their own acts of beneficence equally with those to whom they are done, so there are scarce any natures so entirely diabolical as to be capable of doing injuries without paying themselves some pangs for the ruin which they bring on their fellow-creatures. Mr. Nightingale, at least, was not such a person. On the contrary, Jones found him in his new lodgings, sitting melancholy by the fire, and silently lamenting the unhappy situation in which he had placed poor Nancy. He no sooner saw his friend appear than he arose hastily to meet him, and after much congratulation said, "'Nothing could be more opportune than this kind visit, for I was never more in the spleen in my life.' "'I am sorry,' answered Jones, "'that I bring news very unlikely to relieve you. "'Nay, what I am convinced must, of all other, shock you the most. "'However, it is necessary you should know it. "'Without further preface, then, I come to you, Mr. Nightingale, "'from a worthy family, which you have involved in misery and ruin.' "'Mr. Nightingale changed colour at these words, "'but Jones, without regarding it, proceeded, in the liveliest manner, to paint the tragical story with which the reader was acquainted in the last chapter. Nightingale never once interrupted the narration, though he discovered violent emotions at many parts of it. But when it was concluded, after fetching a deep sigh, he said, "'What you tell me, my friend, affects me in the tenderest manner. Sure there never was so cursed an accident as the poor girl's betraying my letter. Her reputation might otherwise have been safe,' and the affair might have remained a profound secret. And then the girl might have gone off never the worse, for many such things happen in this town, and if the husband should suspect a little when it is too late, it will be his wiser conduct to conceal his suspicion both from his wife and the world. Indeed, my friend, answered Jones, this could not have been the case with your poor Nancy. You have so entirely gained her affections that it is the loss of you and not of her reputation which afflicts her, and will end in the destruction of her and her family. "'Nay, for that matter, I promise you,' cries Nightingale, "'she have my affection so absolutely, that my wife, whoever she is to be, will have very little share in them.' "'And is it possible, then,' said Jones, "'you can think of deserting her?' "'Why, what can I do?' answered the other. "'Ask Miss Nancy,' replied Jones warmly." In the condition to which you have reduced her, I sincerely think she ought to determine what reparation you shall make her. Her interest alone, and not yours, ought to be your sole consideration. But if you ask me what you shall do, what can you do less, cries Jones, than fulfill the expectations of her family and her own? Nay, I sincerely tell you, they were mine, too, ever since I first saw you together. You will pardon me if I presume on the friendship you have favoured me with, moved as I am with compassion for those poor creatures. But your own heart will best suggest to you whether you have never intended, by your conduct, to persuade the mother as well as the daughter into an opinion that you designed honourably. 
and if so, though there may have been no direct promise of marriage in the case, I will leave to your own good understanding how far you are bound to proceed. Nay, I must not only confess what you have hinted, said Nightingale, but I am afraid even that very promise you mention I have given. And can you, after owning that, said Jones, hesitate a moment? Consider, my friend, answered the other. I know you are a man of honour, and would advise no one to act contrary to its rules. If there were no other objection, can I, after this publication of her disgrace, think of such an alliance with honour? Undoubtedly, replied Jones, and the very best and truest honour, which is goodness, requires it of you. As you mention a scruple of this kind, you will give me leave to examine it. Can you with honour be guilty of having under false pretenses deceived a young woman and her family, and of having by these means treacherously robbed her of her innocence? Can you with honour be the knowing, the wilful occasion, nay, the artful contriver of the ruin of a human being? Can you with honour destroy the fame, the peace, nay, probably both the life and soul too of this creature? Can honour bear the thought that this creature is a tender, helpless, defenceless young woman, a young woman who loves, who dotes on you, who dies for you, who hath placed the utmost confidence in your promises, and to that confidence hath sacrificed everything which is dear to her? Can honour support such contemplations as these a moment? Common sense indeed, said Nightingale, warrants all you say, but yet you well know the opinion of the world is so contrary to it, that was I to marry a whore, though my own, I should be ashamed of ever showing my face again. Fie upon it, Mr. Nightingale, said Jones. Do not call her by so ungenerous a name. When you promised to marry her, she became your wife, and she hath sinned more against prudence than virtue. And what is this world which you would be ashamed to face but the vile, the foolish, and the profligate? Forgive me if I say such a shame must proceed from false modesty, which always attends false honour as its shadow. But I am well assured there is not a man of real sense and goodness in the world who would not honour and applaud the action. But admit no other would, would not your own heart, my friend, applaud it? And do not the warm, rapturous sensations which we feel from the consciousness of an honest, noble, generous, benevolent action convey more delight to the mind than the undeserved praise of millions? Set the alternative fairly before your eyes. On the one side, see this poor, unhappy, tender, believing girl in the arms of her wretched mother, breathing her last. Hear her breaking heart in agonies, sighing out your name, and lamenting, rather than accusing, the cruelty which weighs her down to destruction. Paint to your imagination the circumstances of her fond, despairing parent, driven to madness, or perhaps to death, by the loss of her lovely daughter. View the poor, helpless, orphan infant, and when your mind hath dwelt a moment only on such ideas, Consider yourself as the cause of all the ruin of this poor, little, worthy, defenceless family. On the other side, consider yourself as relieving them from their temporary sufferings. Think with what joy, with what transports, that lovely creature will fly to your arms. See her blood returning to her pale cheeks, her fire to her languid eyes, and raptures to her tortured breast. Consider the exultations of her mother, the happiness of all. Think of this little family made by one act of yours completely happy. Think of this alternative, 
and sure I am mistaken in my friend, if it requires any long deliberation whether he will sink these wretches down forever, or by one generous, noble resolution, raise them all from the brink of misery and despair to the highest pitch of human happiness. Add to this but one consideration more, the consideration that it is your duty so to do, that the misery from which you will relieve these poor people is the misery which you yourself have willfully brought upon them. Oh, my dear friend, cries Nightingale, I wanted not your eloquence to rouse me. I pity poor Nancy from my soul, and would willingly give anything in my power that no familiarities had ever passed between us. Nay, believe me, I had many struggles with my passion before I could prevail with myself to write that cruel letter, which hath caused all the misery in that unhappy family. If I had no inclinations to consult but my own, I would marry her to-morrow morning. I would, by heaven! But you will easily imagine how impossible it would be to prevail on my father to consent to such a match. Besides, he hath provided another for me, and to-morrow, by his express command, I am to wait on the lady. I have not the honour to know your father, said Jones, but suppose he could be persuaded. Would you yourself consent to the only means of preserving these poor people? As eagerly as I would pursue my happiness, answered Nightingale, for I never shall find it in any other woman. Oh, my dear friend, could you imagine what I have felt within these twelve hours for my poor girl? I am convinced she would not engross all your pity. Passion leads me only to her, and if I had any foolish scruples of honour, you have fully satisfied them. Could my father be induced to comply with my desires, nothing would be wanting to complete my own happiness or that of my Nancy. Then I am resolved to undertake it said Jones. You must not be angry with me, in whatever light it may be necessary to set this affair, which you may depend on it, could not otherwise be long hid from him. For things of this nature make a quick progress when once they get abroad, as this unhappily hath already. Besides, should any fatal accident follow, as upon my soul I am afraid will, unless immediately prevented, the public would ring of your name in a manner which, if your father hath common humanity, must offend him. If you will therefore tell me where I may find the old gentleman, I will not lose a moment in the business, which, while I pursue, you cannot do a more generous action than by paying a visit to the poor girl. You will find I have not exaggerated in the account I have given of the wretchedness of the family. Nightingale immediately consented to the proposal, and now, having acquainted Jones with his father's lodging, and the coffee-house where he would most probably find him, he hesitated a moment, and then said, "'My dear Tom, you are going to undertake an impossibility. If you knew my father, you would never think of obtaining his consent. Stay, there is one way. Suppose you told him I was already married. It might be easier to reconcile him to the fact after it was done.' And upon my honour, I am so affected with what you have said, and I love my Nancy so passionately, I almost wish it was done, whatever might be the consequence. Jones greatly approved the hint, and promised to pursue it. They then separated, Nightingale to visit his Nancy, and Jones in quest of the old gentleman. CHAPTER Eight: WHAT PASSED BETWEEN JONES AND OLD MR. NIGHTINGALE with the arrival of a person not yet mentioned in this history. Notwithstanding the sentiment of the Roman satirist, which denies the divinity of fortune, 
and the opinion of Seneca to the same purpose, Cicero, who was, I believe, a wiser man than either of them, expressly holds the contrary. And certain it is, there are some incidents in life so very strange and unaccountable that it seems to require more than human skill and foresight in producing them. Of this kind was what now happened to Jones, who found Mr. Nightingale the Elder in so critical a minute that fortune, if she was really worthy of all the worship she received at Rome, could not have contrived such another. In short, the old gentleman, and the father of the young lady whom he intended for his son, had been hard at it for many hours, and the latter was just now gone, and had left the former delighted with the thoughts that he had succeeded in a long contention which had been between the two fathers of the future bride and bridegroom, in which both endeavoured to overreach the other, and, as it not rarely happens in such cases, both had retreated fully satisfied of having obtained the victory. This gentleman, whom Mr. Jones now visited, was what they call a man of the world, that is to say, a man who directs his conduct in this world as one who, being fully persuaded there is no other, is resolved to make the most of this. In his early years he had been bred to trade, but having acquired a very good fortune, he had lately declined his business, or to speak more properly, had changed it from dealing in goods to dealing only in money, of which he had always a plentiful fund at command, and of which he knew very well how to make a very plentiful advantage, sometimes of the necessities of private men, and sometimes of those of the public. He had indeed conversed so entirely with money, that it may be almost doubted whether he imagined there was any other thing really existing in the world. This at least may be certainly averred, that he firmly believed nothing else to have any real value. The reader will, I fancy, allow that fortune could not have called out a more improper person for Mr. Jones to attack with any probability of success, nor could the whimsical lady have directed this attack at a more unseasonable time. As money, then, was always uppermost in this gentleman's thoughts, so the moment he saw a stranger within his doors, it immediately occurred to his imagination that such stranger was either come to bring him money or to fetch it from him. And according as one or other of these thoughts prevailed, he conceived a favorable or unfavorable idea of the person who approached him. Unluckily for Jones, the latter of these was the ascendant at present, for as a young gentleman had visited him the day before, with a bill from his son for a play-debt, he apprehended, at the first sight of Jones, that he was come on such another errand. Jones, therefore, had no sooner told him that he was come on his son's account than the old gentleman, being confirmed in his suspicion, burst forth into an exclamation, that he would lose his labor. "'Is it then possible, sir,' answered Jones, "'that you can guess my business?' If I do guess it, replied the other, I repeat again to you, you will lose your labor. What, I suppose you are one of those sparks who lead my son into all those scenes of riot and debauchery, which will be his destruction. But I shall pay no more of his bills, I promise you. I expect he will quit all such company for the future. If I had imagined otherwise, I should not have provided a wife for him, for I would be instrumental in the ruin of nobody. How, sir? said Jones, and was this lady of your providing? Pray, sir, answered the old gentleman, how comes it to be any concern of yours? Nay, dear sir, replied Jones, 
Be not offended that I interest myself in what regards your son's happiness, for whom I have so great an honour and value. It was upon that very account I came to wait upon you. I can't express the satisfaction you have given me by what you say, for I do assure you your son is a person for whom I have the highest honour. Nay, sir, it is not easy to express the esteem I have for you, who could be so generous, so good, so kind, so indulgent to provide such a match for your son, a woman who, I dare swear, will make him one of the happiest men upon earth. There is scarce anything which so happily introduces men to our good liking, as having conceived some alarm at their first appearance, when once those apprehensions begin to vanish, we soon forget the fears which they occasioned, and look on ourselves as indebted for our present ease to those very persons who at first raised our fears. Thus it happened to Nightingale, who no sooner found that Jones had no demand on him, as he suspected, than he began to be pleased with his presence. "'Pray, good sir,' said he, "'be pleased to sit down. "'I do not remember to have ever had the pleasure of seeing you before. "'But if you are a friend of my son, "'and have anything to say concerning this young lady, "'I shall be glad to hear you. "'As to her making him happy, "'it will be his own fault if she doth not. "'I have discharged my duty in taking care of the main article. "'She will bring him a fortune capable of making any reasonable, prudent, sober man happy.' "'Undoubtedly,' cries Jones, "'for she is in herself a fortune, "'so beautiful, so genteel, so sweet-tempered, "'and so well-educated. "'She is indeed a most accomplished young lady, "'sings admirably well, "'and hath a most delicate hand at the harpsichord.' "'I did not know any of these matters,' "'answered the old gentleman, "'for I never saw the lady. "'But I do not like her the worse for what you tell me.' and I am the better pleased with her father for not laying any stress on these qualifications in our bargain. I shall always think it a proof of his understanding. A silly fellow would have brought in these articles as an addition to her fortune, but to give him his due, he never mentioned any such matter, though to be sure they are no disparagements to a woman. I do assure you, sir, cries Jones, she hath them all in the most eminent degree. For my part, I own I was afraid you might have been a little backward, a little less inclined to the match, for your son told me you had never seen the lady. Therefore I came, sir, in that case, to entreat you, to conjure you, as you value the happiness of your son, not to be averse to his match with a woman who hath not only all the good qualities I have mentioned, but many more. If that was your business, sir, said the old gentleman, we are both obliged to you, and you may be perfectly easy— for I give you my word I was very well satisfied with her fortune. Sir, answered Jones, I honour you every moment more and more. To be so easily satisfied, so very moderate on that account, is a proof of the soundness of your understanding, as well as the nobleness of your mind. Not so very moderate, young gentleman, not so very moderate, answered the father. Still more and more noble, replied Jones, and give me leave to add, sensible, for sure it is little less than madness to consider money as the sole foundation of happiness. Such a woman as this with her little, her nothing of a fortune, I find, cries the old gentleman, you have a pretty just opinion of money, my friend, or else you are better acquainted with the person of the lady than with her circumstances. Why, pray, what fortune do you imagine this lady to have? What fortune, cries Jones, why too contemptible a one to be named for your son. "'Well, 
well well said the other perhaps he might have done better that i deny said jones for she is one of the best of women ay ay but in point of fortune i mean answered the other and yet as to that now how much do you imagine your friend is to have how much cries jones how much why at the utmost perhaps two hundred pounds do you mean to banter me young gentleman said the father a little angry no upon my soul answered jones i am in earnest nay i believe i have gone to the utmost farthing if i do the lady an injury i ask her pardon indeed you do cries the father i am certain she hath fifty times that sum and she shall produce fifty to that before i consent that she shall marry my son nay said jones it is too late to talk of consent now if she had not fifty farthings your son is married my son married answered the old gentleman with surprise nay said jones i thought you was unacquainted with it my son married to miss harris answered he again to miss harris said jones no sir to miss nancy miller the daughter of mrs miller at whose house he lodged a young lady who though her mother is reduced to let lodgings are you bantering or are you in earnest cries the father with a most solemn voice indeed sir answered jones i scorn the character of a banterer i came to you in most serious earnest imagining as i find true that your son had never dared acquaint you with a match so much inferior to him in point of fortune though the reputation of the lady will suffer it no longer to remain a secret while the father stood like one struck suddenly dumb at this news a gentleman came into the room and saluted him by the name of brother but though these two were in consanguinity so nearly related they were in their dispositions almost the opposites to each other the brother who now arrived had likewise been bred to trade in which he no sooner saw himself worth six thousand pounds than he purchased a small estate with the greatest part of it and retired into the country where he married the daughter of an unbeneficed clergyman a young lady who though she had neither beauty nor fortune had recommended herself to his choice entirely by her good humour of which she possessed a very large share with this woman he had during twenty-five years lived a life more resembling the model which certain poets ascribe to the golden age than any of those patterns which are furnished by the present times by her he had four children but none of them arrived at maturity except only one daughter whom in vulgar language he and his wife had spoiled that is had educated with the utmost tenderness and fondness which she returned to such a degree that she had actually refused a very extraordinary match with a gentleman a little turned of forty because she could not bring herself to part with her parents the young lady whom mr nightingale had intended for his son was a near neighbour of his brother and an acquaintance of his niece and in reality it was upon the account of his projected match that he was now come to town not indeed to forward but to dissuade his brother from a purpose which he conceived would inevitably ruin his nephew for he foresaw no other event from a union with miss harris notwithstanding the largeness of her fortune as neither her person nor mind seemed to him to promise any kind of matrimonial felicity for she was very tall very thin very ugly very affected very silly and very ill-natured his brother therefore 
no sooner mentioned the marriage of his nephew with Miss Miller than he expressed the utmost satisfaction, and when the father had very bitterly reviled his son, and pronounced sentence of beggary upon him, the uncle began in the following manner. "'If you was a little cooler, brother, I would ask you whether you love your son for his sake or for your own. You would answer, I suppose, and so I suppose you think, for his sake, and doubtless it is his happiness which you intended in the marriage you proposed for him.' Now, brother, to prescribe rules of happiness to others hath always appeared to me very absurd, and to insist on doing this very tyrannical. It is a vulgar error, I know, but it is nevertheless an error, and if this be absurd in other things, it is mostly so in the affair of marriage, the happiness of which depends entirely on the affection which subsists between the parties." I have therefore always thought it unreasonable in parents to desire to choose for their children on this occasion, since to force affection is an impossible attempt. Nay, so much doth love abhor force, that I know not whether, through an unfortunate but uncurable perverseness in our natures, it may not be even impatient of persuasion. It is, however, true that, though a parent will not, I think, wisely prescribe, he ought to be consulted on this occasion, and in strictness, perhaps, should at least have a negative voice. My nephew, therefore, I own, in marrying, without asking your advice, hath been guilty of a fault. But honestly speaking, brother, have you not a little promoted this fault? Have not your frequent declarations on this subject given him a moral certainty of your refusal where there was any deficiency in point of fortune? Nay, doth not your present anger arise solely from that deficiency? And if he hath failed in his duty here, did you not as much exceed that authority when you absolutely bargained with him for a woman without his knowledge, whom you yourself never saw, and whom, if you had seen and known as well as I, it must have been madness in you to have ever thought of bringing her into your family? Still I own my nephew in a fault, but surely it is not an unpardonable fault. He hath acted indeed without your consent, in a matter in which he ought to have asked it, but it is in a matter in which his interest is principally concerned. You yourself must and will acknowledge that you consulted his interest only, and if he unfortunately differed from you, and hath been mistaken in his notion of happiness, will you, brother, if you love your son, carry him still wider from the point? Will you increase the ill consequences of his simple choice? Will you endeavor to make an event certain misery to him, which may accidentally prove so? In a word, brother, because he hath put it out of your power to make his circumstances as affluent as you would, will you distress them as much as you can? By the force of the true Catholic faith, St. Anthony won upon the fishes. Orpheus and Amphion went a little farther, and by the charms of music enchanted things merely inanimate, wonderful both. But neither history nor fable have ever yet ventured to record an instance of any one who by force of argument and reason hath triumphed over habitual avarice. Mr. Nightingale, the father, instead of attempting to answer his brother, contented himself with only observing that they had always differed in their sentiments concerning the education of their children. "'I wish,' said he, "'brother, you would have confined your care to your own daughter, 
and never have troubled yourself with my son, who hath, I believe, as little profited by your precepts as by your example. For young Nightingale was his uncle's godson, and had lived more with him than with his father, so that the uncle had often declared he loved his nephew almost equally with his own child. Jones fell into raptures with this good gentleman, and when, after much persuasion, they found the father grew still more and more irritated, instead of appeased, Jones conducted the uncle to his nephew at the house of Mrs. Miller. Chapter 9 Containing Strange Matters At his return to his lodgings, Jones found the situation of affairs greatly altered from what they had been in at his departure. The mother, the two daughters, and young Mr. Nightingale were now sat down to supper together, when the uncle was, at his own desire, introduced without any ceremony into the company, to all of whom he was well known, for he had several times visited his nephew at that house. The old gentleman immediately walked up to Miss Nancy, saluted and wished her joy, as he did afterwards the mother and the other sister, and lastly he paid the proper compliments to his nephew, with the same good humor and courtesy as if his nephew had married his equal or superior in fortune, with all the previous requisites first performed. Miss Nancy and her supposed husband both turned pale, and looked rather foolish than otherwise upon the occasion. But Mrs. Miller took the first opportunity of withdrawing, and having sent for Jones into the dining-room, she threw herself at his feet, and in a most passionate flood of tears, called him her good angel, the preserver of her poor little family, with many other respectful and endearing appellations, and made him every acknowledgment which the highest benefit can extract from the most grateful heart. After the first gust of her passion was a little over, which she declared, if she had not vented, would have burst her, she proceeded to inform Mr. Jones that all matters were settled between Mr. Nightingale and her daughter, and that they were to be married the next morning, at which Mr. Jones, having expressed much pleasure, the poor woman fell again into a fit of joy and thanksgiving, which he at length with difficulty silenced, and prevailed on her to return with him back to the company, whom they found in the same good humor in which they had left them. This little society now passed two or three very agreeable hours together, in which the uncle, who was a very great lover of his bottle, had so well plied his nephew, that this latter, though not drunk, began to be somewhat flustered, and now Mr. Nightingale, taking the old gentleman with him upstairs into the apartment he had lately occupied, unbosomed himself as follows. "'As you have been always the best and kindest of uncles to me, and as you have shown such unparalleled goodness in forgiving this match, which, to be sure, may be thought a little improvident. I should never forgive myself if I attempted to deceive you in anything. He then confessed the truth, and opened the whole affair. "'How, Jack,' said the old gentleman, "'are you really, then, not married to this young woman?' "'No, upon my honour," answered Nightingale. "'I have told you the simple truth.' "'My dear boy,' cries the uncle, kissing him, "'I am heartily glad to hear it.' I never was better pleased in my life. If you had been married, I should have assisted you as much as was in my power to have made the best of a bad matter. But there is a great difference between considering a thing which is already done and irrecoverable, and that which is yet to do. 
Let your reason have fair play, Jack, and you will see this match in so foolish and preposterous a light that there will be no need of any dissuasive arguments. Oh, sir, replies young Nightingale, is there this difference between having already done an act and being in honour engaged to do it? Pooh, said the uncle, honour is a creature of the world's making, and the world hath the power of a creator over it, and may govern and direct it as they please. Now you well know how trivial these breaches of contract are thought. Even the grossest make but the wonder and conversation of a day. Is there a man who afterwards will be more backward in giving you his sister or daughter? Or is there any sister or daughter who would be more backward to receive you? Honour is not concerned in these engagements. Pardon me, dear sir, cries Nightingale. I can never think so. And not only honour, but conscience and humanity are concerned. I am well satisfied that was I now to disappoint the young creature, her death would be the consequence, and I should look upon myself as her murderer, nay, as her murderer by the cruelest of all methods, by breaking her heart. Break her heart, indeed. No, no, Jack, cries the uncle. The hearts of women are not so soon broke. They are tough, boy, they are tough. But, sir, answered Nightingale, my own affections are engaged, and I never could be happy with any other woman. How often have I heard you say that children should be always suffered to choose for themselves, and that you would let my cousin Harriet do so? Why, I, replied the old gentleman, so I would have them, but then I would have them choose wisely. Indeed, Jack, you must and shall leave the girl. Indeed, uncle, cries the other, I must and will have her. You will, young gentleman, said the uncle. I do not expect such a word from you. I should not wonder if you had used such language to your father, who hath always treated you like a dog, and kept you at the distance which a tyrant preserves over his subjects. But I, who have lived with you upon an equal footing, might surely expect better usage. But I know how to account for it all. It is all owing to your preposterous education, in which I have had too little share. There is my daughter now, whom I have brought up as my friend, never doth anything without my advice, nor ever refuses to take it when I give it her. You have never yet given her advice in an affair of this kind, said Nightingale, for I am greatly mistaken in my cousin, if she would be very ready to obey even your most positive commands in abandoning her inclinations. Don't abuse my girl, answered the old gentleman with some emotion. Don't abuse my Harriet. I have brought her up to have no inclinations contrary to my own. By suffering her to do whatever she pleases, I have inured her to a habit of being pleased to do whatever I like. Pardon me, sir, said Nightingale. I have not the least design to reflect on my cousin, for whom I have the greatest esteem. And indeed, I am convinced you will never put her to so severe a trial, or lay such hard commands on her as you would do on me. But, dear sir, let us return to the company for they will begin to be uneasy at our long absence. I must beg one favour of my dear uncle, which is that he would not say anything to shock the poor girl or her mother. Oh, you need not fear me, answered he. I understand myself too well to affront women, so I will readily grant you that favour, and in return I must expect another of you. There are but few of your commands, sir, said Nightingale, which I shall not very cheerfully obey. Nay, sir, I ask nothing, said the uncle, but the honour of your company home to my lodging, 
that I may reason the case a little more fully with you, for I would, if possible, have the satisfaction of preserving my family, notwithstanding the headstrong folly of my brother, who, in his opinion, is the wisest man in the world. Nightingale, who well knew his uncle to be as headstrong as his father, submitted to attend him home, and then they both returned back into the room, where the old gentleman promised to carry himself with the same decorum which he had before maintained. Chapter 10 A Short Chapter Which Concludes the Book The long absence of the uncle and nephew had occasioned some disquiet in the minds of all whom they had left behind them, and the more, as during the preceding dialogue, the uncle had more than once elevated his voice so as to be heard downstairs, which, though they could not distinguish what he said, had caused some evil foreboding in Nancy and her mother, and indeed even in Jones himself. When the good company, therefore, again assembled, there was a visible alteration in all their faces, and the good humor which, at their last meeting, universally shone forth in every countenance, was now changed into a much less agreeable aspect. It was a change, indeed, common enough to the weather in this climate, from sunshine to clouds, from June to December. This alteration was not, however, greatly remarked by any present, for as they were all now endeavouring to conceal their own thoughts, and to act a part, they became all too busily engaged in the scene to be spectators of it. Thus neither the uncle nor nephew saw any symptoms of suspicion in the mother or daughter, nor did the mother or daughter remark the overacted complacence of the old man, nor the counterfeit satisfaction which grinned in the features of the young one. Something like this, I believe, frequently happens, where the whole attention of two friends being engaged in the part which each is to act in order to impose on the other, neither sees nor suspects the arts practiced against himself, and thus the thrust of both, to borrow no improper metaphor on the occasion, alike takes place. For the same reason, it is no unusual thing for both parties to be overreached in a bargain, though the one must be always the greater loser, as was he who sold a blind horse, and received a bad note in payment. Our company in about half an hour broke up, and the uncle carried off his nephew, but not before the latter had assured Miss Nancy, in a whisper, that he would attend her early in the morning, and fulfill all his engagements. Jones, who was the least concerned in this scene, saw the most. He did indeed suspect the very fact, for besides observing the great alteration in the behavior of the uncle, the distance he assumed, and his overstrained civility to Miss Nancy, the carrying off of a bridegroom from his bride at that time of night was so extraordinary a proceeding that it could be accounted for only by imagining that young Nightingale had revealed the whole truth, which the apparent openness of his temper and his being flustered with liquor, made too probable. While he was reasoning with himself whether he should acquaint these poor people with his suspicion, the maid of the house informed him that a gentlewoman desired to speak with him. He went immediately out, and taking the candle from the maid, ushered his visitant upstairs, who in the person of Mrs. Honour, acquainted him with such dreadful news concerning his Sophia, that he immediately lost all consideration for every other person, and his whole stock of compassion was entirely swallowed up in reflections on his own misery, and on that of his unfortunate angel. What this dreadful matter was, the reader will be informed, 
after we have first related the many preceding steps which produced it, and those will be the subject of the following book. End of section 51 Recording by Charlene V. Smith